Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hello and welcome to episode 23. What an honor, what a privilege to be with you guys today. The interview that you are about to listen to really touched my heart. We go deep. It's very honest and I'm really proud of of this interview. Our guest, Mary Elizabeth Williams, she is a writer. She's been featured in the New York Times, The Nation. She's been on MSNBC. NBC Nightly News, that's all the glamorous stuff. But really what's uh, incredible about her is her journey. She was diagnosed with stage four cancer and she was one of the few people who had the chance to try a new trial of immunotherapy. If you look at the cover of Time Magazine for this month, you'll read, what if your immune system could be taught to kill cancer inside the brutally selective, hugely expensive, life-saving trials of immunotherapy. Immunotherapy, everyone's talking about it. It's everywhere. It's in every major newspaper. It's all over the news because for generations, treatment barely progressed past surgery and radiation and chemotherapy, what Mary Elizabeth calls the holy trinity known as slash, burn, and poison. And now immunotherapy is giving us new hope when it comes to cancer research and the power that we have, the power really of our own immune system. So we talk about this fascinating topic. We talk about what we can do to help spread this message to those who might be able to benefit from immunotherapy. And the conversation goes even deeper because cancer, the statistics, they're just so huge. I mean, chances are, that you probably know someone who has suffered with cancer. It is so prevalent in our society, and it's a topic that makes many people feel uncomfortable. And so when we find that someone in our life has been diagnosed with cancer, what do we say? What do we do? How do we help? Mary Elizabeth shares her personal experience of stage four cancer and how it impacted her relationships, her friendships, her relationship with her husband, and what we can do to best support people in our lives that have this diagnosis. It is a powerful interview. It's a lot of it is based on her book that I talk about a lot. It's uh, her book is called A Series of Catastrophes and Miracles. I read it from cover to cover. I cried a lot and I also laughed a lot. It really is a, a beautifully written book. And what I think that's so special about Mary Elizabeth is that she's brutally honest when it comes to this topic. She's brutally honest about the ups and she's brutally honest about the downs. And this is so important because when we're struggling with any type of disease, any type of problem in our life, it's so easy to feel isolated. It's so easy to feel like we're the only ones that feel this desperation. And when we begin to understand that we're not alone and that there are communities to support us, it can be so powerful. And so Mary Elizabeth, she talks about that. She talks about immunotherapy. 
how to support those around you and it's just a great conversation so i hope you enjoy this interview this is one of those interviews that if you know someone who is struggling with cancer or has someone in their life who struggles with cancer i think it's really going to help them so make sure you share it this is an act of love so spread the love again thanks for being with us today and enjoy this interview Welcome, Mary Elizabeth. Thank you for being on my show. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, I told you that I I read your book, and it's not every day that you finish a book that leaves you crying on the couch. And then, you you know, I was was looking out the window, and I just felt overwhelmed by so many emotions from reading this book. You know, feelings of just hope and and just a, a different perspective in life, and also the realities of cancer. And it's not every day that you can read a book that really impacts you and then go, oh, at 2.45, I get to interview the author. So oh, it's, it's really, yes, it's amazing to, to speak to you. And first off, just congratulations on on writing this book. You Thank are, you so much. You're so vulnerable in this book. You share your story through cancer, which we'll hear about. But where I'd like to start is to learn why you felt this message was so important, why you wanted to share your story with so many people, because it's such a personal story that I can only imagine it takes a a level of courage to share. (laughs) Courage or, um, I don't know, craziness. I (laughs) I still can't quite decide what it is. Um, Yeah, you know, I think I mean, I think all, everybody who goes through uh, a very challenging experience, or many of us who go through a challenging experience, think I I want to tell a story about this. I want to I want to share it. But I know that the first time I got cancer, as as a practical journalist and a practical writer, I knew that my my story was not particularly unique. Mm-hmm. I had I had a diagnosis. I had young children. I had surgery. I cried a lot. I was really scared. But then allegedly I got better. But what happened the second time around was that uh, I had very serious cancer and I wound up being one of the very first people in this really groundbreaking clinical trial that I honestly do believe is part of a new way of approaching cancer, a new way of treating cancer that I absolutely think is going to change how we look at cancer and how we help people with cancer. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a big compelling force for me. And then I think the other force was that along the way, I wound up having this experience with a, a very, very close friend of mine who was going through cancer at the same time. And I felt like a lot of the books that I had read already about cancer and a lot of the stories I had seen were always so kind of upbeat and cheerful and rah-rah. I'm so tough and witty and perky and spunky and a warrior. And I wanted to tell a story about cancer that was a little bit broader and said, you know, some of us do really well. Some of us do not do very well. Um, and that that is the reality of sickness and that is the reality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to present a story that, that had people who had very different outcomes in it right. because that's reality. Right. I, there's also something so comforting, even when reality can be painful to look at, when you realize that 
you share that reality with other people, when someone can can read a story and see themselves in it, even if it's not a happy story, there's something so comforting about that. I, I hope so. You know, if you if you live on this planet, I don't see how you possibly get out of it without fear, without loss, without grief. And I know when I was in a really dark place in my own cancer, I just felt like, ugh, the last thing I want to read is some like happy peppy story where somebody like beats, you know, says like, I kicked cancer's butt and look at me, yay me, I'm so strong. Like it just felt really like pain, it actually felt painful to read those kinds of stories. This kind of, um, incredibly arrogant way of looking at disease in terms of winners and losers and that if you are fortunate enough to recover from an illness that somehow that is through you know your own grit and determination and strength and chutzpah um and i wanted to i wanted to share a story that that says you know sometimes the outcomes are different um and that is not that is not a personal victory but it's also not a personal failing mhm yes i know that this book and and what your your journey there's it's really there's a spotlight on it right now because of all the articles coming out about uh, immunotherapy and i i want to jump into that in just a moment but staying on this track of talking about the experience with cancer one of the reasons i was excited to have you on the show and why i feel like this message is so important to my audience is that we live in a world where unfortunately all of us have been touched some way by cancer either maybe not getting cancer, but having a loved one or a relative or even a school teacher, it's it's really present in our society. Yeah, one, at, the, at the, the minimum, one in three people will, <sighs> will experience cancer yeah. personally in their lives. So how can you not, I mean, unless you only know one other person and that person <laughs> right. just get cancer, <laughs> right? you're going to know someone who's had cancer. Right. And I, so I lived in New York for many years and I was volunteering at this center where every Sunday they would give free alternative treatments. Uh, and when I say alternative, I just mean like massage and I would teach tapping a stress relief technique. It wasn't anything that would replace what they were already doing. It was it was services that might be out of their budget. And so I had the opportunity to speak to, to a lot of women. And in this case, they were women who were struggling with breast cancer. And I was so surprised that when I heard about their struggle, a big part of it was how their family and friends were reacting to yeah. it. And it always was a big part of the conversation. And so for those who have family or friends, either someone in the past or it's just good information to know in the future. What are ways that other people can support those in their lives who've just been diagnosed or who've been battling this for a while? That's um, that's a really, really great question. I think first and foremost is to just ask the person directly. You know, we all have extremely, you know, there's not one one size fits all appropriate mm-hmm. response. You know, some people are very much like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to make, you know, the cancer, the, the front and center topic in our lives. And, you know, some people get really like, they really get very, very private about the experience. And, you know, other people like me will just like, you know, live tweet their whole cancer experience <laughs> for the world. Um, so I think, I think it, 
it helps to kind of know the person or to just ask the person, like, what do you want? How do you want to proceed with this? What would make you feel comfortable? Um, and I, I think that that's a really important first step because I think the things that the thing that really hurt me the most, the thing that really disappointed me the most were when people I really loved and really trusted and thought I could say anything to and share anything with just backed off, clammed up, didn't talk to me, just just completely didn't know what to say or do. And so they didn't say or do anything. You know, I think just even if you, you don't have to you don't have to fix other people. You don't have to cure them. You don't have to try and figure out how to make their lives better in cancer. All you have, or anything, any any difficult situation, all you have to do is say, like, I'm here for you. I'm your friend. I can sit with you in this experience. What do you need? And if what you need is to go to a bar and have a beer, or if what you need is for me to come with you to your treatments, or if what you need is to for me to just say, this sucks, then I will give you that. Yes. There is a line in your book that I loved. You were telling the story about bringing your daughter. I think it was one of the last uh, treatments that you had. And you just have this line you wrote, you don't need to do much. You just need to share the space. That's what love looks like. I loved that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think sometimes we, you know, we feel so uncomfortable because in our culture, we don't really talk a lot about sickness and we don't talk about death and, and, you know, everybody's Instagram is, has to be totally aspirational and Mm -hmm. hashtag blessed. And, you know, in reality, we don't, we're, we're sort of taught to not share our suffering. We're taught to not share our fear. Um, You know, we're, we're kind of discouraged from that. And, uh, and so it's hard to know what to do. And so, so instead, sometimes we do nothing. And, and the truth is it takes very, very little. It takes very little effort and very little to just, to just kind of be there, be a presence in someone's life, to just hold their hand is, is everything. Right. Can you share the story about your neighbor and the cake? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so I have this um, this wonderful family that's lived down the hall from us for many years. And like my family, they have uh, two daughters. And then there's another family that lives in my building that has um, four kids. And uh, at one point, very soon after I had been re-diagnosed at stage four, and things were extremely bad, and, and my, fa- my daughters and I had just gotten over also having lice, um, <laughs> my doorbell rang one night, um, you know, sort of close to dinner time and uh it was my neighbor's daughters and they were bearing a a cake and uh, it had two words on it and the second word was cancer and uh, this is a podcast on itunes we're allowed to we're allowed to swear (laughs) i always like to make sure no i know it's a good idea to make sure but it's safe you can swear was fuck and uh, and it was be- it was a beautiful chocolate cake and um and it was decorated in little white candies and and the kerning on it was really magnificent and uh and it was just these two little girls holding this cake with an obscenity on it and uh and I I said um, and my my friend's daughter said um we made you a cake with a bad word on it and I said you know sometimes a bad word is exactly what's called for and uh and these kids and then their parents all came over and we all ate this cake and it just felt like like that to me is just a classic example of something really simple that you can that somebody could do for another person and also um like it was very um very specific to my um sensibility right, I think they, right. they knew that that was the kind of thing that I would really love yeah you I, don't you don't bring 
that cake to grandma. I but- love chocolate and I love profanity. So it was like the best of all worlds. Absolutely. I love that. Well, and you also, not only did you share your story, but you also shared the perspective of the caregiver. You talk about your husband. And for those who are caregivers or those who are also looking, because, you know, when we think about someone who's struggling with cancer, we think about the person with cancer, but then they have their family, right, yeah. who, who are also struggling with cancer. Oh, my God, so much. So and, much. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, it's funny because I was I was in a different kind of scenario like that just yesterday with my younger daughter um, where she was going through some medical tests, but it was very stressful for me. And she said and she said something like, well, you know, it, I'm the one who's going through these tests. And I said, yes, sweetie, that's OK. It's your party today. But. I just need, you know, it's okay for all of us to have feelings around this and it's okay for all of us to take care of each other. And, you know, having been on all sides of this, I really get that now. I get that, sure, when you have stage four cancer, it's your show, it's your party, you're the star of it. Um, but it's an, it's an incredibly challenging situation for everyone in your, in your life, everyone who is touched who, who touches you and, and everyone needs help. Everyone needs support. And, and I think sometimes the people who are in the caregiving roles feel like they don't deserve it or they haven't earned it. And that's how you get burned out. And that's how, how it just, it it just makes a, a very difficult situation even worse. And I think, I think anyone who is in a caregiving role needs, needs love and support and help and days off and time for themselves as well, because it's, it's a very, very emotional, ride and and the stresses of being in that place are very intense and need to be respected right right and I think it's important to bring that up because is is if anyone that's listening who has someone who's impacted with cancer in their life that we also take a moment to think about how we can support the caregiver and the family because they're they're suffering as well absolutely it's a really really hard place to be and you know one thing that i have learned in so many different ways along the way is to is to accept help is that we all need to be able to accept help and that um, and that if you're not accepting help, you're not really fully participating in in all of the love and generosity that is available to you in the world. And that means whether you're the person who's sick or whether you're the person who's taking care of the person who's sick, um, that sometimes you have to be able to say, I need help, please help me and let people help you. It feels so good to help people. It feels so good when you know that someone is struggling to do for them. You know, even if it's just being like, I'll be the one who like brings over dinner today, or I'll be the one who takes the kids while you and your husband have a night off, whatever that may be. Um, you know, give people the pleasure and the privilege of taking care of you. Right. I mean, and that's true whether you have cancer or not whatever you're struggling with. Yeah, you know, don't wait to get cancer to have people take care of you. Right, (laughs) right. For sure. Right. So I actually, what was so great about reading your book is uh, for about four years, I lived on Houston between Sullivan and McDougal. So I would walk by Gilda's Club every day. Love it. And I never like I, I knew what it was, but I didn't know much. But every time I walked down the block, it was almost like there was a spotlight on it. I just it's so beautiful and it just felt it always caught my attention. And so it was really amazing to hear 
what was going on uh, in that building. Could you share a bit about Gilda's Club? I know that your book, Part of the Profits, are going to go to Gilda's Club, but I'd, I'd love to hear more about the club and also just your thoughts around the power of community. Yeah, it's um, it's a really special place, so I'm not at all surprised that you you felt that you really do. You you just walk energy. past the, the clubhouse yeah. and you can feel some this amazing special energy coming from it. So um, Gilda's and there are uh, there are chapters all over the country, and there are also you know other kinds of support resources. Um, what is incredible about it, it is this, it's a free community, and it's for people with cancer, and it's for people. Um, it's for anyone facing cancer. So it's also for caregivers. It's also for kids. Um, they, you know, your criteria for becoming a member of Gilda's Club is basically that you are facing cancer in any way. So if your brother is going through cancer or it's your spouse or it's your mom or your kid, um, there are resources for you and there, you know, they have special, they have a special club for kids. They also have a special club for teenagers. They have, um, classes and events, but, you know, the heart of it really is the support groups. And what I found out becoming a member and having my spouse become a member and having my kids become members all in our respective, um, groups is, is that in a very, very out of control, very scary, uncertain situation in your life, um, to have a place where you're among other people who speak the same language that you do, um, where you can be honest and vulnerable is incredible. Uh, and also when you can come in on after a day where you have been struggling and you feel terrible and you feel sick and you can maybe say something that's helpful and supportive to someone else, it is incredible. Right. It's so powerful. I, I also want to know about, I think when you're sick, it can also be very isolating, which is, like you said, why it's so important to have a community and someone else that speaks your language. When you're going through, when you were going through the day-to-day there was a lot going on. You were going to the hospital often. There were a lot of tests. Was there a thought or something that you would hold on to that could help you? And obviously, you're so real in this book that you talk about the roller coaster of the ups and downs. But when you were just looking to grab some type of hope or just to pull yourself out of a, a negative place, was there something that you would think about or hold on to that you felt g- gave you strength? Yeah. And, you know, it would, it would really vary from day to day. I mean, sometimes you just kind of have to, I think, I think if you meditate, you kind of, and some days you meditate longer than others or, or whatever it is, you kind of understand that, um, you know, I think it's the, the Dalai Lama who says that if you can't, um, you know, if you can't meditate once a day for 20 minutes, then meditate 20 times a day for one minute. Right. And, you know, sometimes yeah. that's kind of what it's like, like the act of, uh, of finding grace. Maybe it's only in a minute in your day. And, I remember there were a lot of times when I would be walking cross town. I would always, I would always walk from the subway, this long cross town walk to, to Sloan Kettering. And I would just like listen to certain songs, um, just to kind of get, you know, maybe it's like, that's it. Maybe it's just the, the span of a three minute song that I really love, you know, or maybe it's knowing that after, after this minute at the hospital, I'm going to go and I'm going to get soup at this place where I really love the soup or whatever it may be. Or maybe I know that at the end of this day, I'm going to watch a movie with my kids and we're all just going to like put on our pajamas at, you know, seven o'clock and watch a movie together, whatever it is. I think sometimes you have to really seek 
grace. And you have to say, like, maybe I don't get a full day at, you know, Disneyland today. Maybe what I get is, you know, just really enjoying my oatmeal this morning or whatever it may be, or knowing that there's like, I'm going to like check in with a friend. You know, I would have friends who would text me while I was at treatment and just say like, I'm thinking of you or send me something funny. And it's just those little things like just to be able to have a day, a moment in your day where you can laugh um, or where you can just hold someone's hand or whatever it is, or just, you know, have dinner with people you love. It varies from day to day, but there's always a moment in your day that you can find grace. Yes. And in whatever situation you're in. Yeah. So I want to talk about this hot topic, immunotherapy. It's all over the news. Um, It's very exciting. And just hearing about your experience is is incredible. I mean, before we completely dive into that, just for those who might be new to your story, can you talk about the type of cancer you had and how you found yourself with using this new type of treatment? Yeah, sure. So uh, I had a little bump on the top of my head. Um, that I felt when I was washing my hair and I really didn't think anything of it at all. I, it, maybe I'm just not enough of a hypochondriac, but I just didn't think it was a big deal. But I went to the skin doctor and she said that looks like skin cancer and she biopsied it and it turned out it was malignant. And very soon after I had very major surgery because it turned out that it had progressed pretty far. Um, and then a year later, the cancer came back because melanoma has a very high uh, recurrence rate. And so it had moved into my lung and then it had moved into my soft tissue. I had a visible tumor on my back uh, that was tender and sore to the touch. And, uh, you know, generally this was five years, it was not quite five years ago. Um, Generally at that point, uh, if you had metastatic melanoma, you probably had a few months to live. That's generally the way that it would go. I mean, I, re- I have to say, I, I just love the, I don't love, I, love isn't the right word, but it was so eye-opening to part of your book that you would look at your shampoo bottle or even like a bottle of tabas- uh, Tabasco sauce and be like, will I outlive this shampoo bottle? Will I get through this shampoo bottle? Yeah, just those- it, get, it gets very real. Oh. You know, you really start to see your life in, in terms of, 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 it's finite nature mm. and, and an understanding that um, the world is going to go on without you and things are going to be here and maybe you're not. Uh, yeah, it was, it was super intense. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, I was a patient at Memorial Sloan Kettering and my oncologist uh, referred me to a clinical trial that was just beginning to recruit. And she felt I would be a good candidate. And it was a combination of two different forms of immunotherapy, which is, as you said, is a, is a pretty new way of approaching cancer. And uh, it was with a drug that had very recently been approved by the FDA. It was one of the first immunotherapy drugs approved. It was the, the first one, uh, first drug approved for the treatment of melanoma in a very long time. And it was combining that with a brand new drug. Um, And I didn't have a lot of other options. I really didn't have a lot of other treatment options that would work on metastatic melanoma. That's kind of part of the problem with metastatic melanoma is there aren't a lot of things you typically, traditionally would have been able to do for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started in this trial where I was receiving this combination of drugs. And what immunotherapy does that is very different from conventional cancer treatment is it doesn't try to uh, eradicate the cancer. 
It doesn't target the cancer. Immunotherapy targets your, your body's own immune system. And what it tries to do is wake up your immune system, your T cells, to recognize and kill cancer. And so the kind of treatment that I had uh, worked on my T cells, basically uh, releasing the breaking mechanism on the T cells so that they could see the cancer in my body and destroy it. And within days of my first treatment, I could see the tumor on my back starting to recede. And 12 months into treatment, I had my first set of scans and I was cancer free. And I've been cancer free for four years. Incredible. And what's so incredible about this is that it works after the treatment is over. So you're basically training your immune system. Exactly. That's the hope. You know, there's still, um, you know, because it's still such a a relatively new field, there's, we're still waiting on really long-term data, but the hope and the experience uh, seems to indicate that it works in the way that, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, in, you know, immunotherapy, it's like immunization. The idea is that once your, your immune system recognizes a potential threat to it, it remembers that threat and continues to be vigilant against it. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's so incredible about this breakthrough as well is that when we look at just the history of, of cancer and you talk about this, for generations there hasn't been, there's been a lot of research, but it's always been surgery, radiation, and chemo. There hasn't really been anything else on the table. So much research, billions of dollars, billions of dollars spent in research, and not a whole lot of real tangible progress in terms of things that work. Um, And this seems to, you know, this really does seem to be working in a lot of ways. It works, you know, now my, my drug combination, it was the first, uh, immunotherapy drug combination approved by the FDA. It was approved in 2015. Um, immunotherapy has now been different treatments have now been approved for non-small cell lung cancer, for bladder cancer. Um, I think bladder cancer for kidney cancer. Um, and there are a lot of clinical trials going on now showing results in many other forms of cancer. And that's really exciting. There's never going to be one drug. There's never going to be one answer because there are, because every body is different and every type of cancer is different. Uh, But the hope of just having so many more weapons in the arsenal and so many more different approaches and so many ways of using treatments in combination, um, is really, really exciting. What do you believe has to happen to help this research move forward? You know, there's a lot of talks with President Obama and Vice President Biden have announced, I just was just reading an article today about, you know, they're announcing cancer as the moonshot with with putting more funding into this. So it is becoming a political topic as well. And yeah. there is a lot of discussion around how research is being done. What are your thoughts around what needs to happen to be able to move this forward? Yeah. And uh, just uh, just recently, Sean Parker uh, oh, and yeah. the Parker Institute uh, also contributed a very uh, substantial uh, initiative um, specifically to immunotherapy um, and working, having doctors in um, and researchers in six of the major cancer centers across the, the country work in collaboration on, uh, on developing new forms of immunotherapy. Um, I think for a long time, immunotherapy was not taken seriously in in the cancer community. And it was really, um, 
you know, because there wasn't a lot of success. But now there's so now that we're seeing results, um, it is becoming kind of the darling of of cancer research and cancer treatment. Um, I think a big part of it is kind of getting um, people who are maybe not at the more innovative cancer centers who are maybe not um, really on the cutting edge of of scientific progress to understand that this is yet another option and to really get excited about it and invested in in participate in getting people participating in clinical trials and getting patients to know about it. Um, you know, it surprises me when people who have had cancer say to me, oh, you must have had chemo or just, you know, I mean, I, I had something written about me recently where they, they said that I had had chemo and I didn't have chemo. You can have cancer and not have chemo. Um, that I understand. What shocks me is when I talk to doctors and doctors don't know about immunotherapy. When I talk to oncologists and oncologists still really aren't paying attention to immunotherapy. And I, I really, really want more awareness around it and I want more curiosity around it because I think, I think that's a big, big clue to unlocking progress is just getting people to understand it. It's pretty simple to understand. Um, and getting getting more people who are not just, you know, at Sloan Kettering or at MD Anderson um, to want to to want to be involved in this and want to be in, on board for what's happening in medical progress right now. Right. So do you believe that just spreading this message of awareness, just having more people interested will create more of a movement so more people have access to this? I hope so. I really, you know, I really do. And I'm, you know, I also hope that as that happens, then the price of treatment can go down. Right. Because that's a, you know, that's another big obstacle for a lot of people is the way that, um, you know, the way that the system is kind of set up right now. I mean, that's another thing is, I mean, we could go into the whole like, oh, we need to kind of look at the healthcare system in America in general. Um, but I think, and I also think that being able to, um, in general, not just with immunotherapy, but help patients get better access to clinical trials and removing some of the stumbling blocks and doing more compassionate access. Um, because the way that, that clinical trials work now, it can be very difficult for someone who really can qualify for a very promising treatment to get access to it. Right. And is, is that mostly dependent on where someone lives? Some of it is very dependent on on where you live. Although you know, many clinical trials are at mul you know at multiple facilities, and it's not it's not hard to find treatment you know to find facilities near you. Um, a lot of it has to do with the restrictions um, because the parameters um, for qualification are so tight mm -hmm. um, that if you you know what happens for a lot of people is if you have had treatment recently, you then don't qualify because you you know you need to you need to fit in certain conscriptions. Um, so, you know, raising the, being able to kind of lift the restrictions around compassionate access so that people who are not necessarily part, part of the research can still get access to, right. um, to restricted treatments would be amazing. Right. And you shared in your book as well, you had great results, but everybody is different. So there were some other people in that the trial where it didn't help them. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I had and not only I mean not just in the trial, I had a, a an amazing, incredible woman friend of mine um, who had metastatic melanoma, had just started on my treatment last fall on this I mean literally the same combination, um, who was at, at my hospital with many of my same doctors. Um, she died last fall. She just passed the bar 
She was 25. Mm. It doesn't work on everybody. And, and being relatively young and relatively healthy is not necessarily a guarantee of future success, you know, a lot. And that's the next big mystery. I think that's the real, one of the big questions of immunotherapy is why does it work so decisively on some of us and why are others of us, a large percentage, by the way, um, still dying. Right. Right. But it's, it really is so amazing that after decades that there's something that is giving people so much hope. And also what Sean Parker did where all of these different research centers are sharing their information. I was so shocked to learn that how much research is just stays within that institution and isn't shared. I mean, you can kind of understand it when you look at the institution as a business. Right. But, you know, when it comes to something so serious as a nation, that coming together of sharing that research, it, it really feels like that things are shifting. It does. I feel that way. And I'm really excited. And I I certainly have talked to doctors and researchers who are really excited now and really feel like, um, and also because of of this, it's like now doctors and researchers don't have to spend uh, as much time, you know, writing grant proposals, you Mm -hmm. know, because that's the other thing is it's like trying to get the money to do the research. Um, And if you, you know, if you have access now um, to just going straight to the part where you do the research, um, how incredible. Yeah. And then sharing knowledge. Yeah. I mean, that's, I I just am really optimistic and really, really excited. And, um, and I feel so privileged that just kind of by dumb luck, I, I was there for a front row seat kind of at the beginning of this. And when I look at my daughters who, like me, are extremely fair and, um, you know, probably, um, probably, you know, melanoma uh, candidates, um, the possibility of them growing up in a, in a world where there is less threat and there there is less opportunity for cancer to do its worst to to their generation um, is re- is just humbling and just makes me, you know, cry on the regular. Yeah. Yeah, it is beautiful. For those who who have listened in, I think especially in the beginning of our conversation, we talked a lot about supporting those around us who are struggling with cancer, which I think is 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 so important as this research is so exciting and it's also important to take the time to just give comfort to those who are going through the process right now. But if if when it comes to this new research and this new movement, is there a way that just the common person can can lend their voice? That's a, that's an amazing and, and great question. I mean, I think we all, there's something everyone can do. And I think, I think the key is kind of figuring out what our, our own unique superpowers are, <laughs> you know, is it, um, is it getting involved at the support community level? You know, is it that, is it figuring out like what you can do for your local, um, you know, support your cancer support groups, or is it getting involved in, in just kind of, you know, understanding and educating yourself, um, you know, about cancer, because we all, as you said, it's like, we all know somebody who has cancer, or maybe it's us, um, you know, so how can we, how can we help the people in our lives? And how can we say, hey, have you, you know, have you read this? Or have you looked into this? And just kind of helping other people facilitate their own exploration. Um, And having conversations, I think, with our doctors, you know, whether they're oncologists or not, you know, having conversations about, um, 
you know, have you seen this? Do you know what's going on right now in cancer research? Do you know about this? Because they're going to be, whoever passes through their office is probably going to be going through cancer at some point. Um, and I just think the more we can keep talking and exploring and investigating with curiosity, with skepticism, with rigorous fact checking along the way, um, you know, the more opportunities we're going to have to touch somebody's life, somebody who really needs that information. Right. Absolutely. Well, Mary Elizabeth, I have a few questions that I ask everybody at the end of the show. And one of those questions is, if you could share something that happened in your life, where in the moment, it seemed horrible, but looking back, it was a big blessing. (laughs) I Um there's so I mean you know so much of it's been horrible um yeah somebody asked me recently what was the worst thing you went through when you were going through cancer and I just laughed I just like burst out laughing because <laughs> uh, I was like how, how does how does one get to choose um you know I mean I, I, it's so funny because we talk about things in terms of like the gift of cancer or or the blessings of it and here's the thing I think you can have experiences that are just straight up horrible and <laughs> and the horribleness of that can be within also something that is really beautiful and really touching and really amazing. Um, and it doesn't make those things not horrible. Um, and the things that happened to me, I'll tell you what happened before, uh, I got cancer is my spouse and I were separated for two years and, you know, we were not going, we were apart. Our marriage ended. And I assumed that that was a terrible, horrible thing. Um, And then we wound up reconciling right before I got cancer. And we say so often how lucky we are that we broke up, how lucky we are that our marriage ended, how lucky we are that we came back to each other fully eyes wide open, knowing we had a choice, knowing that we were in it because we wanted to be with each other. And I would never have, when I was crying in the shower um, as my marriage was falling apart, imagined that it was falling apart and that a few years later I would be with the person I loved and trusted and that would be the person that I was going to ask for a divorce. Right. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so powerful. And my last question, it's not as, it's not very deep, but I just, I love this question because I always get interesting answers. If you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? Oh, um, otter, because I'd be like the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> they are so <laughs> cute. But are you are you talking specifically about a sea otter? Because oh, I yeah, think like they're a, the cutest like, of the like otters. Like a sea otter. I would have like enormous brown eyes and I would just like, you know, and I wouldn't um, have a shellfish allergy because I'd be like breaking <laughs> clams on my belly and I could eat clams again. Oh, my God. That's like heaven, right? And then I'd like walk, you know, I'd get to float around like holding flippers with other otters it would be like the jam yeah Yeah, it's like not even a question what's hysterical is on my phone I have so many videos of sea otters because I lived in New York for a long time but then I moved to California and I was living in this like middle of nowhere really cute town called Morro Bay and there were sea otters everywhere and I would always film them because they live you're right they live the life they just all they do is float and eat and they look adorable I 
you're a kindred spirit. I like <laughs> I like your answer. Well, in our next lives, we're going to come back as otter, and we deal. will just like hold our little flippers together and float around. It's going to be beautiful. It's great, and they cuddle too. Oh, it's so cute. I know. Yeah, no, it's, they're the best. Yeah. It's so cute. Well, <laughs> and everyone would love me if I were an otter. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. Uh, Mary Elizabeth, this was a real pleasure. If someone wants to pick up your book and also learn more about everything that you do, where can they go? Uh, all your usual uh, expected outlets um, online and off. Support your local bookstores or just support whoever you want. Just support me is the main thing. <laughs> um, you can also check out my website. Uh, it's maryelizabethlins.net and there's more information there. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you.